belong to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is the word of the Lord. Les just handed me the mic, and she said, uh, there you go. I felt like, and now you get to deal with that passage, Dave. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. So the night before he died, Jesus gathered with some of his closest friends and followers, and he said some things. And he did some things, and I've been arguing that whatever he said and did that night made a huge impact on John, who wrote this letter that we're studying this, this uh, fall. And one of the things he said is he gave this analogy, right? He said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Uh, remain in me, and I will remain in you. He was talking about this authentic life relationship with himself that, that brought about certain fruits in their lives, evidences of a relationship with him. And and really, John's letter that we're going through this fall is all about authentic faith in Jesus Christ. What, is it, what does it look like when a person is really living and remaining in Christ? What is the fruit of their lives? And he's contrasting that with inauthentic faith. And he's arguing throughout this letter, it doesn't matter what a person claims to believe or, or even thinks they believe. What it matters is how they actually live their lives and the fruit of their lives will demonstrate the authenticity of their faith. So we're looking at evidences of authentic faith. Uh, and I showed you this diagram. This comes straight from Jesus' own words in, in that upper room where he says, remain in me. And he says, how, here's how you remain in me. Obey my commands. And guess what? My primary command is this, love one another. And so we've been looking at the obedience of Jesus' commands and love for one another as these two foundational pillars that our faith rests on, maybe these fruits that, that we would see in our lives. And, and those are the themes of John. We love one another. We obey his commandments. That's how we remain in him. It doesn't matter what you claim to believe. It matters if you're doing these things. <laughs> but today we learned that there's, there's one thing. I showed you this a couple weeks ago. There's, there's something really important that's missing from this diagram and it is this, <laughs> it is gospel truth, meaning there is a set of truths that Jesus taught his followers. There's a body of teaching that he gave his followers. 
And to remain in him is to remain in his teaching. And we aren't just supposed to be people who do good things and, and are good, like really loving. That alone is not what, what it is. We are committing ourselves to a whole worldview that Jesus presents us with. Truth claims about reality, about the world, about ourselves, about the future, about the past. And so that living in that and remaining in his teachings is such a vital part of our relationship with him. So today we're going to look at that aspect of what authentic faith is, is about remaining in the gospel truths of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a pretty hard-hitting, another hard-hitting passage, interesting stuff in here. We probably won't be able to cover every detail, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to set a little bit of the context of what John is speaking into here in that first century context and look at our 21st century American context as well and then see what John has to say for them and for us in our current cultural moment. So let's just kind of get ourselves inside the context. Uh, Look at verse 26. This is really helpful context for why John is writing. I am writing to these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. That is the background of, of the writing of 1 John. And what most scholars think is, is the gospel came to these, these, this area around Ephesus and these house churches formed. And people were believing the truths of the apostles of Jesus and their teachings about Jesus. And then over time, some other teachings swept through that area. And some of the people were compelled by that teaching. And it was connected with Jesus, but there were some differences. But they, got, they were convinced of that, and they wandered from the original teachings of Jesus and bought into this new body of teaching. And it was such a painful thing that they ended up leaving these house churches. They've left the community. So there's been this, these breakups in these church communities. And these people are out there, but they're trying to propagate their ideas and trying to lead others astray. So it's this very painful situation in, the early, in these early church, these house churches probably, there's been relational fractures. There's questions and confusions and trying to figure out what are, we, um, what are we supposed to do with this. And we don't really know exactly what that teaching was that was different. All we have is a, a few clues in here. So let me just give you a few clues. But we, we kind of are trying to piece it together. And it really doesn't, we don't have to know exactly what it was. But let me just show you a couple clues from... Uh, the letter itself. Look at verse 22 in our passage. Uh, Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. So apparently there's some teaching out there that affirms something about Jesus, but not that he is the Christ. Let me show you two other passages. Chapter 4, it says this, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but uh, I should say every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So they're denying that Jesus has come in the flesh. Here's one more passage in chapter 5. This is the one who came by water, Jesus Christ, and the, oh, sorry, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. You might be wondering, what the heck does that mean? Okay, but we have these things, and scholars have tried to piece this together, and what they, I think, uh, rightly have concluded is something like this. Um, they're believing something about Jesus, but they're denying that Jesus was the Christ, specifically that he was the divine son of God who actually came in the flesh. And they're denying his blood, his, that his death was a sacrifice for sins that is required for forgiveness, okay? So we don't know exactly what they thought, but that Jesus didn't fully come, the God of the universe didn't fully come in the flesh, and his death was not this atoning sacrifice for sins. They're denying those truths. 
And I'll just stop there and say, those are pretty foundational truths, right? These are not like peripheral issues. Like the incarnation, the, the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, these are foundational teachings of Jesus. And they're denying those things, and then they're trying to persuade others to wander from those things and accept these other truths that they have. And as I said, this is creating lots of pain and confusion. And so what I want to do is just, I want to talk about our context today, okay? 2,000 years later, right, in a different country, in a different cultural context, uh, very different issues, but some of the things that maybe people were denying about Jesus back then are very similar to what they would deny about him today. And I want to go back to this first year. Um, this is the second one I showed you. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Isn't that idea that Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, came in the flesh, that basic idea, isn't that at the heart of everyone's, what trips people up about Christianity? Meaning this idea that the creator of the universe chose to enter into human history and actually become a man, in a particular man, Jesus of Nazareth. So that in this one man, we have the very creator of the universe in the flesh, walking around and talking and telling us things about, about life. Isn't that the thing that trips people up about Christianity in any culture? I mean, I was thinking about that this week, and um, I mean, there's so many implications for that idea, right? If, if the creator actually entered into the creation, became a man, then whatever that man said is definitive, right? It is authoritative. It has implications for everybody. And that's what is so hard to embrace about Christianity, that this one guy is, he speaks as the creator. And so his words are definitive in every single way. Um, scholars call this the scandal of particularity. That's a kind of fun phrase. But what it means is it, it, there's something scandalous. There's something hard to uh, embrace by how particularly God has chosen to show up. That God would show up in one particular man at one particular time, in one particular place, in one particular culture... And yet that one particular man would say things that have implications for every human being everywhere at all time in all cultures. That's hard to swallow. That's a, that's a hard thing to embrace. It's scandalous. It was scandalous then and it's very scandalous, maybe even more scandalous today. Right? I was thinking of some of the particular things that Jesus says. He has very particular views about things. I, I just I want to give you a, a list of quotes. He has very particular views about salvation. He said, this is him speaking. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very specific, particular view of salvation. Uh, he has particular views of eternity. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for there's a wide gate and, and it's broad, but it leads to destruction. And lots of people enter through that gate, but the gate is small and narrow that leads to eternal life. And few find that. That's a very particular view of eternity. Um, he has a particular view of his death. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, here's what my death means. I'm dying for other people. 
I'm dying in their place as a ransom that they might live. That's a very specific and particular view of what was happening at his death. Uh, He has a particular uh, spiritual awareness of what's going on in the spiritual realm. Here's an interesting thing he said to the Pharisees. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, uh, and you want to carry out your father's desire. But think about the spiritual worldview that he has. Uh, Satan, he's talking about, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's a very particular view that there's some spiritual enemy out there that lies and is at the root of all lies in the world. That's a very specific idea. Um, He has a very particular sexual ethic that's very specific. This is him speaking in Matthew 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator, and he goes back to Genesis 1, made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Many of you have heard that many times. That's a very particular ethic around gender and sexuality. Uh, He has a very particular set of treasures that he encourages us to pursue in this life. Don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's a very particular trajectory of pursuits that he is encouraging people away from and towards. Okay, you're getting the point, right? This particular man who claims to be God has very particular views. And I was thinking about, that's the scandal, right? That that would be universally relevant, authoritative, definitive for all humanity. Because if he is the creator, then indeed it would be. And I was thinking how every particular culture then is going to interact with his particular views will look different in each culture. But at various points, every culture is probably going to collide with various parts of his worldview. So I was thinking, okay, let's, let's think about our cultural moment that we're living in, right? 21st century Western Christianity, America, specifically Orange County, okay? I was thinking, what would, what would kind of define some of our particular assumptions, the cultural assumptions out there? Well, one, I'd say it's a very uh, scientific uh, set of assumptions, right? That, that science uh, gives us access to the one definitive truth. If you can't measure it, if you can't see it, it's not necessarily true, right? I mean, that's a We're a scientific age. Uh, We are a very humanistic age where humans are the measure of all things. Um, Most people go around that the human heart is fundamentally a a good thing. Uh, It ought to be freed from constraints that we can be what it is that we, those desires inside of us tell us we should be. You want to be you, you know, be you. That's, That's a good thing. That should be your starting point for how you go through life. Uh, We're very relativistic as a culture. Right? Um, certainly morally, uh, we're very relativistic. It's, uh, hey, you, you do you, I'll do you, me. You still can't harm others. That one's still off limits. Right? But assuming you're not harming someone, that's hard to define what that might be. But assuming you're doing no harm, um, you do, you know, you do you, do you I do me. I'm not going to judge you. You're not going to judge me. Uh, truth itself is relative. Right? Everybody's perspective is equally valid. Everybody's story is equally valid. This is um, part of our cultural moment. Uh, and then, of course, we're very consumeristic. Right? We are being, um, uh, what did I say? We're, we're being sold 
products every day, um, and we're being told to consume experiences, products, entertainment uh, all the time, okay? So th- that would just, you know, you guys could probably add some more to this, but I think that's a fair sampling of our cultural moment, and this is a very powerful narrative. Let me just say this. This is powerful, and it gets inside of us because we're not hearing these arguments. Like It's not like these are being presented in philosophical ar- arguments to us, right? We get these through advertisements and through commercials and through movies and through TV and through stories that are very compelling. And so it, we, we are sitting in this. Um, but you think about how that cultural, these cultural assumptions collide with the particularities of Jesus. I mean, think about that, that scientific perspective. Well, honestly, like Satan, like this, this invisible, you know, force or person out there with a pitchfork and, you know, that whole thing, like, Come on, Jesus, there's, you're, you, that's, there's no way that's actually, he's active in this world. Um, this whole man is the measure of all things. Um, you know, sin and the cross and, what, and the need for that, it strikes us as, I think, strange. Um, this idea that there are eternal destinies that aren't all good, um, that does not sit well with a humanistic mindset. Of course, the relativistic mindset um, that there could be, this guy could speak truth for all human beings and all cultures feels very off-putting. Certainly that he could provide a morality, an ethic on all sorts of things um, that would have, you know, definitive conclusions for all people is very off-putting. And then the consumeristic uh, assumptions, of course, his call to to not pursue the treasures of the earth, but um, pursue these eternal treasures, um, that's a hard one to sit with. Are you with me still? Okay, I'm just kind of, you know, getting us inside the landscape of, of, our, of our day. And um, I'll, I'll get back to the passage. But one last thing, because of where we are, we're all swimming in this. And we're confronted with the particularities of Jesus in this moment, especially in America right now. Uh, and what that's going to mean is that in any church, certainly in any church in Orange County, but any church anywhere, you're probably going to have always three groups of people in a church, okay? So one would be those, I'll just use these words, who would affirm the particularities of Jesus. They embrace his worldview, his teachings. Uh, they do that either because they just kind of, that's just because they grew up in it and they just I just kind of believe it. I don't really know why I believe it, but yeah, if he says it, I, I believe it. That might be why they affirm it. Or because they've really looked into it and they've, they've studied and they've thought and they've wrestled and they've come to the conclusion, yes, he actually, what he's saying is true. So you're going to have a group of people that affirm. Um, you're, of course, going to have, in any local congregation, you're going to have a group of people who would deny essential teachings of Jesus. And what I mean by deny is this. There's something about Jesus that they like. Uh, There's something about the the church community that they like. But in the end, they have fundamentally adopted the assumptions of the culture. Okay? So what I mean by that is wherever the particulars of Jesus and the particulars of the culture collide, they will land in the culture. Like whether it's the sexual ethic, whether it's a view of salvation, it's a view of eternity. When those things collide, they will land on the culture side of that thing. But there's something about Jesus and there's something about the church that they're enjoying, so they're present. Uh, and then you're going to have a group in the middle who would be people who are, um, who are questioning these things. And what I mean by that, people who are, who are honestly seeking truth sitting with what they've been told in the culture, reading what Jesus is saying, and trying to figure it out. And they're having doubts about Jesus. They're having doubts about his views. They're having doubts about this book, but they're honest doubts. They're real questions. 
They're not trying to provoke. They're not trying to make waves. They're just like, this is hard. Like, really, Satan? I mean, we're still, we're still checking the box on that one in the, in the 21st century and scientific age. Like, are we, this is post-enlightenment. We're still going after that. And really, heaven and hell, like, this is, this is tough stuff. One man, one woman for life. That, these, these, are hard, these are hard things to, to swallow. And, um, you know, some of you are there right now. Some of you are in that middle section. You're asking really good questions, and the answers aren't totally working for you. Some of you will be in that, in that place, maybe in five years, and you just don't know it right now. Um, I've been in, in any one of these places at various times in my life, and there's, we're, prob- we're actually probably all in different parts of our lives. We might be in different parts of it. We might be identify ourselves in all of these categories to one extent or another. And I just thought that would be worth saying today. Um, that that is, I mean, if, if you take a minute just to look around the room for just a second. You aren't looking around the room. Look around the room. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Look at the faces around the room for a second. Right? We are, we are all here today. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the reality, is that this, this group of people is gathered here. Uh, that collection of people is here trying to figure out who this Jesus is and what he has to say about life. And I was thinking in light of that, I just think what we're called to is to be what I would call a community humble conviction. <laughs> Meaning that we want to be a community of conviction. That we have conviction on, on the truths of, of Christianity. And I, I want to just speak as, as a pastor here that, that we have core convictions about Jesus. And that we hold to the historic teachings of Jesus. And on every major point, if you would wonder, like, what does grace think? We're going to land on a very historic view of, of how, how Jesus has how the church for 2,000 years has interpreted Jesus' words to mean on a number of issues. And so it's important for people to know that. That's who we are. There's a firm center to this church. We're not going to move from that. We're not, if you're wondering, I feel like other churches are kind of moving this way. That's not where we're going. <laughs> this is who we are. This is what we feel called to. And it's important to, to know that. Uh, but at the same time, I think what we want to be is a, as a people who hold those convictions with humility, Meaning, with an openness to the questions, with, a, with an acknowledgement that there's people among us who are trying to figure these things out, uh, sincerely trying to figure these things out, and with an acknowledgement that, that those people out there someday might be these people in here, that we might be that person with doubts that, that emerge. And so that's important in terms of how we interact with one another, how we talk. You know, when we come in here and out on the patio, how we talk about things and when we're in our small groups. I mean, just to acknowledge like, hey, there's people that find themselves anywhere in this spectrum. And so again, we don't want to be making assumptions. Oh, you know, those people that think these things. I mean, you could say that, but just know that those people might be right next to you uh, in that moment. And so that, you know, this is challenging, but this is the kind of community, I think, particularly in this cultural moment, this is the kind of community we're called to be, a a community with humble but firm, solid conviction about Jesus and his teachings. All right, thus ends Dave's sermon. Uh, And now let's move to John's sermon. So... um, what is John's response to the situation? You know, he's dealing with a particular issue. His issue is particularly extreme. He's got a bunch of deniers, right? This is not like these, these are people that have, they have left core teachings and now they're trying to convince others. That's where he's at. And the, and the communities are afraid and they're trying to figure this out. So let's look at what is, what is his pastoral um, heart and thoughts for them. 
Here's what he does. He gives them first, let me give you perspective, people. Then two, he gives them encouragement. And then three, he gives them a very specific call. Okay, we'll move through these pretty quickly. So first, here's the perspective that John has. Look at verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as we've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Um, Tell me when you get sick of this picture. Right? This is his perspective. It is the last hour. Christ the Messiah has come. The sun is rising in this world, but the night is still here, and the night's not going down without a fight. Okay? That's his perspective. The kingdom is coming. It is the last hour. We've been in the last hour for 2,000 years. Okay? It's been a long last hour until Christ's return. But I think that is the, that's the, certainly the perspective John has here. And he says the last hour is going to have a couple things. One, the Messiah's come, the Spirit's poured out, the gospel's going to go out, great things are going to happen, but then it's going to be met with, with um, questions and doubts and conflict and, and, uh, and this kingdom of darkness kind of fighting for its last breaths. And part of that is going to be this idea of Antichrist. And it seems clear here that the early church had an assumption that, that the forces against Jesus would culminate in the last days, probably in an individual figure that John calls the Antichrist. He's, this is the only place where that phrase Antichrist shows up in the Bible, also Second John, but nowhere else. But probably in some individual future figure who would, who would oppose God's people, who'd set himself up as Lord and be kind of the evil bad guy at the end. But John is saying here, um, you've heard about that guy, but let me give you a broader perspective, whether or not that's happening. What I can tell you is that even now, many antichrists have arisen. And what he's saying is the spirit that maybe that individual embody is already present and active in the world, right? Um, these people who are, who are against Christ and his teachings, these people who uh, want to offer substitutes for the real Jesus, All that to say, he's saying this is already happening, which is to say we are in the last days, which is to say to his people, hey guys, I know this is painful, but don't be surprised. (laughs) This is to be expected. These are the times we're living in. So don't be too caught off guard that this is happening. This is what we should expect. And then he has a perspective on the people who have left these churches. This is what he says. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Okay, you've got the people that stayed in the community, and they're freaking out. They're like, gosh, these people that we lived with them, we, they taught with us, they, they, they left, and what does that mean? Like, are we going to do this? Are we going to leave? Like, we're feeling insecure, and we're questioning things. And John's perspective is, hey, let me just tell you about those people that left. They were never actually part of you. They may have, their faith may have looked real, may have smelled real, you know, it may have felt real, but in the end, they, they were not authentic believers. They never belonged. Their membership in your community was merely external. So just, that's a perspective that you need to have on those people, John says. 
So you put those together. I was thinking of what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. All that to say, don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. He says this. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And John is saying, hey, we're in that time. Don't, don't be surprised with what's going on. I know it's painful, but we should expect this. So that's the perspective. And then comes the encouragement to these believers. Look at verse 20. Here's the encouragement. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Look at verse 26, or verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. The encouragement is this. You guys have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy One being Jesus, I assume here. The anointing of Jesus, then I assume, is the anointing with his spirit. And on that last night before his death, this is what Jesus said. He said, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So John's encouraging them. You have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. God's own spirit lives in you. And he will, he, he will bring you to truth. You know the truth. He's confirmed the truth in your heart and minds. So you can be encouraged by that. And it's interesting to think about what John's view of the Holy Spirit is uh, in this. His view is that the spirit really is there to remind God's people of the truths that they already know in Jesus Christ. It's not like the Spirit is there to um, give them all sorts of new truths that Jesus didn't say. He's not like, hey, the Spirit's going to come and he's going to take you in all sorts of new beautiful directions. That's not John's view. It's, no, the Spirit has anointed you. You know the truth. He is there to ground you more deeply in the truths that you already know. And I think he uses this word anointing because those people left, they were claiming that they had a special anointing. Like, we've had a special anointing. We now know the truth. You guys have missed it. And John's like, no, no, no. You guys were anointed. Remember when the gospel came to you? The spirit came on you. You're anointed. You know the truth. Remain in that. Be, be, be confident in that. He's trying to encourage them with that truth. He's at work in you. You're not deficient. You have what you need. And then finally, and I'll leave us with this. Here's the call. What is the command? What is, what is John Asking, commanding them to do. Well, it is this. In a word, it is this. Remain. That is the call. Remain. Look at verse 27. The second half, there's only, only one command in this whole passage, and it is this word that gets repeated a couple times. Verse 27, second half. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is his time, the command, Remain in him. Remain in him, being, the him being Jesus. Remain in that relationship with Jesus that you've been given through his Holy Spirit. And so I think that is a wonderful command for us today. I mean, in this cultural moment where things are moving quickly, it is to remain in Jesus. And I, I invite you to that, whether you are fully convinced of the truths of Jesus or whether you are questioning or whether you're like, I don't think I believe this. This is the invitation. Remain in Jesus. 
root yourself deeply in that relationship with a person. Keep going back to Jesus. Okay? Whatever else you're looking at, keep going back to him. Stay close to him. Daily consider him. Regularly come back to him. And ask your questions. And pursue your doubts. But in the end of the day, keep coming back to Jesus. Practically speaking, Dave, what, how do I remain in Jesus? What does that mean? Well, John gives us the answer in verse 24. Take a look at verse 24. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. This is practically how to remain in Jesus. Let what you heard from the beginning remain in you. Meaning the teaching you heard from the beginning. Remember how his... His letter starts, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which our hands have touched. John is taking them back to the original eyewitnesses of Jesus. Those early apostles, disciples who walked with him, heard his teachings, and then recorded his teachings in the Gospels and these letters that we have. And practically speaking, how do we remain in Jesus? We let what we heard from the beginning remain in us, meaning we let his teachings remain in us. We let his word remain in us. I was thinking of this image of a, of a vine and branches, right? And you've got, you've got the sap or the fluids of the vine that then give life to the branches and that ultimately bear fruit. And so this week I was thinking that the, that fluid, that sap is like the words of Jesus that continue to go into our lives as we continue to remain in his words. This is what Jesus says in John 15. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. And so I think that is the call for us as a church is to continue to go back to the words of Christ. The body of teachings that he and his early followers left us to have. To remain in them And by remain, it doesn't mean just don't veer from them. I think it means plant your roots deep in them. Take them in every single day. It's remarkable that we have access to this book. Unlike so many generations of Christians, every single day I can take this in and remain in this in like 20 different ways. I can read it here. I can read it on my phone. I can listen to it in my car. I mean, there's so, I can sing about it in songs. It's a remarkable privilege that we have. And so this is the call, particularly in this cultural moment, where there are so many forces at work in our culture saying, gosh, really? There's no way this can still be true. The call is no, continue to remain in these words. Take a deep dive into God's word. And I'd encourage you to start with the gospels. Just start with the words of Jesus. You don't even have to go anywhere beyond those. You could stay in those for the next 10 years. You'll be great. Really, everything that's in the rest of it is there too. It's going to be entirely consistent. Remain in him. Remain in his words. Do not be anxious about the fact that even the Christian culture is moving into all sorts of new directions these days. You know, I was thinking in John's gospel, in John 6, um, Jesus says some pretty crazy things. And at that point, crowds are like, this, is, this guy is a little, little much. And they start leaving him. And, uh, and the disciples are left. Like the crowds scatter and the disciples are left. And Jesus is like, um, you know, so what about you guys? You guys out too? And uh, here's, what, here's what Peter says. 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so I think that is, is what we're called to as a community. As people kind of scatter from, from these core teachings of Jesus. And that creates all sorts of questions and insecurity. That we keep going back to Jesus and his words. And then they say, this is hard, this is confusing, but where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we live in such a complicated time with so many ideas out there, and some of them are incredibly compelling to our hearts and minds. We need your spirit, that anointing, to guide us, to lead us into truth. I pray that you would continue to form in us a people who are hungry for your word, who abide in your word, who just eat your word like bread and drink your word like water and are sustained by it. Would you shape our minds, shape our hearts so that they are in line with your truth that is life. Grant us life. And may we be a place in this church where people can come and find truth. And question and wrestle, but in the end, find the truth that is you, Lord. May we be that uh, in this cultural moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.